Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thwack! That is the sound of the first ever books landing fully formed in the Egyptian desert. Slightly bigger than we're used to, actually. No flashy front covers, but they are unmistakably books inside their leather-bound covers were radical, mystical ideas that are fiercely debated to this day. A fitting start for an invention that stands alone as the supreme symbol of human learning. Books spread ideas, they spark revolutions, they are burnt, they are treasured, they give solace As I record this, I am staring at my bookshelves and there are books really from throughout my entire life. I've got some of my kids' books in front of me when I was little and books that I had at university and a book that I've written, books that were written by friends. Books mean all kinds of things. They are things that we cherish. They are more than just the sum of their parts. They are special. They are part of us. I think it's why we struggle getting rid of books because somehow getting rid of your books is getting rid of yourself in a sense. Hello and a very warm welcome to Patented. It's a podcast about the history of inventions from History Hit. I'm Dallas Campbell. Thank you very much for being here. So today is all about how the book came to be. What's wrong with good old scrolls of paper? How was the first book made? When did books go from being incredibly expensive and ornate to mass market paperbacks? My guest today is Keith Houston, author of the wonderful book called The Book, an exploration of the most powerful object of our time. If you love books, you should get this book. Enjoy. Keith, welcome to the show. It's lovely to have you. Thank you. Nice to be here. Oh, look what I've got in my hand. I have in my hand a copy of Keith's book. And it's a thing of beauty, actually. It's one of those books that you like to touch and hold and imaginatively entitled The Book. Difficult to know what else to call it, really. Well, I was going to say, did that take a long time to come up with that title? It's really interesting. In publishing nowadays, the subtitle is almost as important, I think, for search engine optimization yeah. purposes. So it's got a very long and slightly unwieldy. I just like the idea of having a very direct title. What's it called? The book. What's it about? The book. I've become slightly obsessed by book marketing at the moment. When you go to Waterstones or somewhere and you look around, all books now have a subtitle. And I've noticed there's another phenomenon, which is they all have a subtitle, which is like uh, the subtle art of not giving a... F- you can just 
just feel the weight of the marketing hand. We're going to come back to this. Um, anyway, just to say right at the beginning, your book is beautiful. It's called The Book. It is about the history of the book. And actually just on the cover for our readers, there's lots of lovely annotations which are really useful because in the publishing world, things like subtitle that we've just mentioned or foot or end papers or you know what it's like it's a bit like a sort of annotated picture of the human body you know with all labeled which bit does what we're going to lots to talk about books obviously this is very specifically a program about the invention of the book and i know you're going to say books weren't invented but (laughs) but but just bear with me for a moment i'm going to read a bit from your book if that's okay Okay, sure. Which is beautifully written. And I think this is quite a useful place to start, actually. And also, it's a rather, it's a rather nice story. Uh, one day in late 1945, near the town of Nag Hammadi in Upper Egypt, some 80 miles north of Luxor, brothers Muhammad al-Al-Samam and Abu al-Maj were digging out nutrient-rich soil, or sabak, in order to fertilise the harder earth of their nearby grain fields. Abu's mattock struck something solid under the soil, and together the two dug out a large earthenware jar topped with a ceramic bowl and sealed with a kind of tarry substance. At first afraid to open the jar, in case it harboured a genie, Muhammad the elder brother worked up the courage to smash it open with his mattock. In place of the expected supernatural being, they found twelve leather-bound papyrus books, along with a smattering of loose papyrus sheets, which they gathered up and brought home to be deposited on the ground beside their mother's bread oven. Is that the earliest book that's kind of ever been? Because I, I mean, what, by book, I'm thinking about things, paper joined together by some kind of spine. Yeah, if you'd been around in classical times, then a, a book would have been a scroll. It's, it's, you know, a coll- it's a collection of bits of writing material joined together I guess, papyrus at that point. So the concept of the book has been around for longer than our idea of the book. But the the books you're describing there, the Nag Hammadi Library, are, as far as I'm aware, the oldest good complete examples that we have. So they tell us quite a lot about how books were were made at that point, how paste books were made at that point. When are we talking? So Nag Hammadi, when were these books made? Early 4th century CE. So they're from Egypt, but also there, there's another site in Egypt called, what's the, I forget what the village is called. It was called Oxyrhynchus. Good name. Named named after elephant-nosed fish, I think, that swam in the canal near nearby. Oxyrhynchus. I want to move to Oxyrhynchus. <laughs> there was a huge treasure trove of papyrus, um, actually parchment documents found in the rubbish heaps, the tells that the inhabitants of Oxyrhynchus left between the town and the fields around them. So archaeologists mm. love to excavate uh, rubbish heaps because that's where all the good stuff is. And it means you only have to look in one place. Yeah. So there are a pair of archaeologists. I want to say this was late 19th century, early 20th century. And they were basically looking around Egypt for interesting places to, to excavate. They found this, they found these tells around this village and they excavated just piles I think it's probably tens of thousands of documents from this one site, um, Oxyrhynchus. Mm. And there is evidence there of paged books from the first century. They couldn't quite believe it because the writing style suggested it should be from the first century. But the fact that what it looked like a page from a book meant that they thought this can't be any earlier than the third or fourth, fourth century. They could not believe their eyes at this point. Yeah. Oh, that's interesting. When do you think, actually, well, while we're in Egypt, of course, when we think about writing. Mm. I think about Egypt. I think about things like, well, the discovery of the Rosetta Stone, mm-hmm. Champollion and people like that. You know, these sort of early forms of writing were on stone and walls and hieroglyphs mm. were written on walls. And and then I think of cuneiform tablets mm-hmm. and, and, and that kind of stuff. 
And then we get into sort of scrolls and papyrus. But I'm just trying to think, when do we think the putting together of pages in, a, in what we would form a book? It, or is it just completely lost in time? It is. One of the things I looked at for the book was, is there any sort of founding myth or legend for a particular component or part of the book? So paper yeah. uh, was invented in China. But papyrus, for example, which is where you take uh, papyrus reeds that grow along the banks of the Nile, you take off the skin, you cut the pith into strips, you kind of lay them, you lay them on a flat surface, squish them together, leave them mm-hmm. to dry to make this writing material. There is no one, no one is said to have invented this. No. One of the one of the Egyptian gods, Thoth, gave writing to the Egyptians, but there's no, but there's 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 not even a similar origin story for for papyrus as a writing material. And most of the origin stories that do exist, they've just been added later. You know, someone has come along later and has claimed credit for it. So all of the things, rather most of the things that go into making a book are just like lost in the mists of time. Interesting. These Nag Hammadi books that mm. were found in this earthenware jar that was dug up by these two brothers in, in Egypt. If we kind of, just for the sake of argument, if we're saying, well, this is kind of the earliest examples we've mm. got of a book, maybe you could just describe what they look like, how big they were, what they... Sure. I mean, in the world of secondhand books, that's pretty, that's, that's pretty old. <laughs> <laughs> There's one particular Nag Hammadi book that ended up in the possession of what's called the Jung Foundation, which was founded by uh, this, this organisation created by Carl Jung, the psychologist. I'm familiar with Carl Jung. Well, not in a not in a psychoanalytic way, just generally. Apparently, uh, I'm not sure if he was involved directly, but I, certainly his followers or successors thought that if they could lay their hands on this Gnostic fourth century Christian book, they might learn something about the human psyche. So they managed to buy this one book, even though it was never supposed to be exported from Egypt. Oh, crikey. Interesting. I said the Nag Hammadi books, plural, what do they look like? I mean, if I picked one up now, what am I holding in my hand? They're about the same size as a large hardback novel. They're a little bit taller. Our books are a little bit sort of squatter and wider. You could hold one, you could pick one up in one hand. They are, as I say, about the same size as a modern sort of hardback book. They're bound in leather. So the first thing you'll see is a single piece of leather kind of folded in half and tied together with straps so that they could be transported without falling open. And if you open it inside, then you'll see a stack of papyrus sheets. So papyrus is made from the pith of the papyrus reed. It's quite, yeah, it's it's quite rough and fibrous. I actually managed to buy some papyrus um, online just to just. To I have some knocking around somewhere as well. I think when I was in Egypt, I'd spent a lot of time in Egypt. I think, you know, when you mm. go to Egypt, Egyptian markets, they've always got really bad souvenirs of things printed on a kind of papyrus. But it's fibrous and it's sort of crisscross, isn't it? Yeah, the fibres will run one way on the front of it and the other way on the back. So it's quite scratchy. Apparently the Egyptians used to chew on reeds to make little brushes, which makes it a bit easier than having a, a, a pen or, you know, uh, like a, a pen. Yeah, with- those papyrus pages, are they bound together? So you've got a leather cover, I'm imagining a bit like a file or a folder. Are they bound in somehow, cleverly? Yeah, this is where it starts to get interesting. So the way that the Nag Hammadi books were made is that you, you can imagine this rectangular leather cover being laid flat on a table in front of you, and then a stack of papyrus sheets, a, bit, a little bit smaller than the cover, placed on top. You then need to pierce some holes down the middle. So if you imagine the papyrus sheets are all folded in half, you need to pierce, let's say, four holes along the spine, and you can use another leather thong to go all the way through this block of papyrus sheets, through the cover, back inside, and then you can tie it off. Oh, like stitching them together, like a kind of running stitch? It's tied or knotted rather okay. than sewn in a sense. Like a ring binder, do you mean? I'm, I'm, I'm sort of imagining a ring binder. It's got little clippy things with, and the paper's got holes. How's, how best to describe this? If you imagine a piece of paper yeah. that you fold it in half, 
yeah. and you open it up again. So it's as if it's two pages. You've now got a crease that runs down yes. between the two pages. If you pierce some holes through that crease, so you have, let's say, four holes running from the top to yeah. bottom of the crease, that's the spine of the book, right? That's the center of the book. Yeah. And if you have a leather thong or a piece of thread, you pass it through one of the holes, it comes into the inside of the paper and goes out or the papyrus and then goes out the other side and you knot it outside the book. So you just have these two loops of uh, two loops of leather or thread that are holding the whole thing together. That, yeah, that, that makes sense. So these brothers, how many books did they find? They found these sort of leather-bound books. Like how many were there? Oh, that's a good question. I think it was 12 okay. or thereabouts. <laughs> a beautifully leather-bound encyclopedia set. Yeah. <laughs> Do we know what was in them? I mean, what was the contents of the book? It was material related to Gnosticism, which is a, a sort of esoteric yes. Christian sect. Um, hence Carl Jung's interest, or rather his followers' interest. That's really, really interesting. Egypt's kind of mm. where things started. One thing that's quite relevant to books is that papyrus, not only was papyrus made in and native mm. to Egypt, it actually lasted really well because Egypt's quite dry. If you bring papyrus to Europe, where it's damp and wet yeah. and cold, it tends to rot. So when these two archaeologists were excavating the, the rubbish heaps around uh, Oxyrhynchus, everything above the water table was still fine. It just it had been in this dry sand or soil for a really long time, and uh, it had survived quite well. The climate of Egypt is conducive to us learning more about it. I'm just sort of interested in that transition point where we used to use things like, I suppose, do we talk about scrolls before we talk about books? Like, how were things written before books, as you describe, happened? So uh, scrolls, and then before scrolls, presumably clay tablets. Cuneiform was invented in Mesopotamia, so between the Tigris and the Euphrates, broadly Iraq or Iran. That was just over 3,000 years ago, I think. 3,300 BC. S- sorry, what was the word you said? Cuneiform, just to explain, yeah, cuneiform. explain what that is. Cuneiform means wedge-shaped, and it's writing that's made with a stylus, a stick, which is trimmed into a kind of triangular shape, and pressed into wet clay. So cuneiform writing looks like a lot of little triangles. If you're if if you're writing a book, let's say about mm. the book, and you want to reproduce some cuneiform characters, the letters that you will see printed are composed of these little triangles. But cuneiform itself, in person, is very three dimensional because you have to impress it into these clay tablets. So our mod- the modern way that we would represent it in a printed book is somewhat not representative of how it actually looks in reality. Is it a language then? Yeah, it was a script. The way that this came about was, I think a lot of modern civilization, really, or modern practices come out of Mesopotamia. So farming, for example. They loved farming in Mesopotamia. As the state got more sophisticated and more organized, there was a need Mm. to transmit and record information. And so the theory is that the Mesopotamians, I guess the Sumerians, used little tokens. They would have little clay tokens, maybe a cone or a disc, to represent some quantity of a thing. So if I'm a farmer and I'm selling you some stuff, we might need a record of our Mm. transaction. So if I sell you five bushels of wheat, I might put five little tokens inside a little clay ball and I give this to you. And when you come back to me and and say, you only sold me four, we can crack open that little ball and find five inside. And that's kind of like a receipt. That's a record of the transaction. I can say, no, I did sell you five. Here you are. They started to push these tokens into the outside of the balls rather than enclosing them inside the ball. So you have to break the ball open to see what's inside. They realized if they squished these little tokens into the outside, the indentations they left were just as readable and as useful as the actual tokens inside. This appears to be where cuneiform came from. So the first writing was numbers or as representation of quantities for accounting. This evolved into a script to record the language that they spoke. Uh, Cuneiform was used to write down at least two different languages, I think Sumerian and Akkadian. 
So it's kind of like uh, the Roman alphabet that we use. You can write Italian or Spanish or mm-hmm. French or German or English using the same set of characters. So cuneiform is the same. The Egyptians heard about this and invented their own system of writing in a really short period of time. Egypt went from having no writing to having basically hieroglyphics in a mostly, not finished form, but in a mostly wow. usable form in about 100 years. So it seems like they heard about it and just lifted the idea wholesale, but not the actual writing system. I mean, hieroglyphs are the little pictures, I guess, sort of pictorial representations mm-hmm. of things. Although hieroglyphs are very symbolic. I mean, there are pictures of things like snakes and people and stuff, but also other much more symbolic symbols that don't have a instant mm-hmm. visual meaning, but are encoded yeah. in language somehow. Both cuneiform and hieroglyphics are partly pictorial. Mm. You know, you can draw a picture of a thing or you can have a symbol that represents a thing, or you can use the sound of that thing as a replacement. You can, let's, let's say you draw a reed, a papyrus reed. In modern language, if we have the word reed, we might use that symbol to mean I'm reading something, or the reed of a woodwind instrument as opposed to a reed that grows beside a river. So both hieroglyphics and cuneiform you could take a word that represented a sound and use that in a different mm. context to mean the sound rather than the word. And then I think eventually they became syllabic. So each symbol meant one particular yeah. syllable. And that's how you built it up. So it wasn't letters where we have letters that are no. more or less divorced entirely from the sound you make. It was a kind of halfway house between them. So, okay, so we've got writing, we've got clay tablets, which people mm-hmm. might, might be familiar. I'm always interested in clay tablets because they're, they're always about the size of an iPhone. There seems to be a particular size that sort of fits into the hand that we haven't really got away from it. If, you, if, you've, if you've ever seen them in a museum, that. Oh, no, absolutely. They're all of, of a few inches in size. There was a, a device for writing it, not, not a book as such, but for taking notes called a diptych. Yeah, a diptych. It's like a wooden book, but just two pages. <laughs> yes, uh, and they would have wax inside them and you could just write in the wax with a, a, sharp, a sharp stick, a stylus. And it was almost always exactly the same size. They're about the same size as a smartphone yeah. thereabouts, or most of the portable ones yeah. are that same size. Yeah, our, our hands don't... This is one of the really interesting things about the book. Humans don't really change size or shape no. very much, right? We, our hands are still the same as they were thousands of years ago. Our, our, we're, we're roughly as tall, maybe a little bit taller, but that's why books are the size they are. They work it's well really for our hands. That's why tablets and dictics yeah, te- are. The, I mean, that early technology of forms of writing, which mm. is a form of technology and our technology today, kind of looks the same. It's the mm. same size. And actually, the other technological thing, I suppose, that sort of links us over this great ocean of time. When I look at my smartphone, if I'm reading on my smartphone, I am scrolling, scroll, 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 rather rather than book. So pre-book, we mentioned this earlier on, we have scrolls, basically long bits of paper which are rolled Mm. up, which would be the way to get as much information on a piece of paper as possible, have a long piece of paper. So just talk to us a little bit about the, the origins of scrolls. Yeah. Um, well, so we talked about cuneiform. We talked about how the Egyptians seemed to be inspired to invent hieroglyphics. They invented papyrus pretty shortly mm. after. There's evidence for papyrus writing sheets going back to about, again, I think it's about 3000 uh, BCE or thereabouts. So about 5000 years ago. And they started making scrolls pretty quickly afterwards. The problem is that this is so long ago that the evidence is quite thin. Mm. The first scroll was blank. It was found in a grave, as I guess lots of other things were in ancient Egypt. And there was no writing on it. It was just a kind of performative thing. You know, perhaps this person was learned in, in life, so they want something that looks a bit like a book. <laughs> they haven't figured out the tech yet. It's the sort of like scroll equivalent of the internet going down or ancient Egyptian <laughs> content creator. They yeah. couldn't think of anything. I, I, I sort of I always wondered, was he expected to keep a diary, keep a blog of his time in the afterlife? Or maybe he just had writer's block. <laughs> I know what that's terminal, like. Terminal. Staring, staring at a blank piece of paper and just... 
giving up. Yeah. But that idea of, 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 of the technology of the scroll... Mm. So where do we know where that came from? Is uh, I'm going to have to disappoint you. No. no. Um, <laughs> I think the thinking is that if you have individual sheets, you need to start binding them together because you want your book to be a coherent thing. You want it to be portable and mm. robust. So just a, a stack of loose sheets of papyrus is somewhat unhelpful. And the first thing that happened, or the first thing that anyone thought about was, well, let's make some glue. Let's take some flour and water. We'll make a bit of paste and we'll stick these two things together. And, oh, I've run out of space. I'll just stick another sheet on and another one and another one until eventually this becomes the standard way of assembling bits of papyrus into a thing that they would think of as a book. Yeah. But I suppose actually the early books, I mean, scrolls, you you mentioned earthenware jars. I always think of, well, when I hear the word scroll, I think of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And weren't they kind of put in jars? And I suppose in a way, the earthenware jar was the binder of scrolls and book in a way, isn't it? Yeah, I would say the closest, well, this this evolved a little bit over time, but the Library of Alexandria, which is, you know, this famous ancient institution of learning, was said to have 700,000 scrolls, which is probably a lie. That's probably about 10 times too many. Mm. But they would have had to have organised them and think that the best evidence so far in terms of images that have survived, artifacts that have survived. Earthenware jars would be used for large scrolls that maybe had to sit on the ground, but other ones would tend to be shelved on what like bookshelves. The Romans certainly had bookshelves which were, it's quite difficult to describe, uh, little kind of square or rectangular cubby holes mm-hmm. with an extra couple of shelves going across it diagonally. So you've got four little compartments mm-hmm. into which you can shelve your rolled up scrolls. They would then have little labels on the end of them that would let you read what was in the scroll before actually taking it out. So kind of like the spine of a book. Mm-hmm. But certainly there's a whole field of study, which is how do we store books? What was the technology of organising them and making them accessible? And you've got jars for scrolls that maybe don't need to move around much. You've got bookshelves for smaller, lighter ones. You have individual mm-hmm. scroll cases, kind of little cylindrical cases that you can use to protect them when you're travelling. Was, was it a case of historically that we kind of reached the point of, okay, we're done with scrolls now, we now have books? Or was there a kind of crossover or or did they sort of co-inhabit the world of writing? There definitely was an overlap. Mm. Romans, for example, were still writing on papyrus scrolls exported from Egypt right through the whole whole period that we think of as the public of the Roman Empire. But then I think think it's the first century, there's a poet called Marshall who, he writes a book and he, Mm. he says, you can also buy this in a kind of travel format. If you go to this one particular bookseller in the forum, and you ask right. for my books, he'll be able to sell you them in a paged format. So he was writing on a scroll and he wanted his readers to buy the same book in a different format. A bit like when DVDs came along and supplanted VHS or, you know, CDs supplanted tapes or records. So there was definitely an overlap. But I think at least at first, there was a perception that perhaps scrolls are good for sitting mm. in your house or your library and being able to use both hands to read them, to be able to sit down at a table. Yes. Actually, the Romans had scrolls with wooden poles, wooden dowels down each end, and they'd have desks with pegs in them so they could prop open the scroll because it's actually quite hard to read a scroll, or at least I guess if you're not used to it, it's quite hard to read it. I bought some, back, back when I was writing the book, I bought a bunch of papyrus, I glued it together and made myself a scroll. Yeah. Tried to write in it, tried to hold it open. And it's really difficult. You need kind of, you need weights on each end. Mm. It's just weird, actually, thinking about scrolling on phones now, how a phone is the same size as a as one of these tablets. And we've kind of gone back, we're so used to scrolling again with our fingers. We scroll down web pages mm. and, and to get information. But it's a really interesting point. When the web was developed, mm. technology would have been there for web pages to be presented as... Uh, in a page yeah. but we didn't do that we had to decide that there's like this endless scrolling vertical rather than yeah. hor- horizontal though I guess which is yeah. uh, films and, and sort of uh, an artwork depict people holding scrolls vertically 
you know, you're unrolling from the top mm. to the bottom, but it was quite the opposite. They tended to be read from left to right. I always imagine, yeah, you imagine sort of town criers with their scroll rolling it down. Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. We'll be back after this short break. We're about to witness the first coronation at Westminster Abbey in 70 years. And Gone Medieval from History Hit is your perfect companion for the event. From the earliest English coronation records to what the royal regalia used in the ceremony means. From the surprising origins of the recognition part of the service to the lavish banquets that took place afterwards. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Dr Kat Jarman. And on Gone Medieval in April, we'll be exploring the medieval origins of this feast of pageantry. We'll try to pick out the key moments for you to watch and trace their origins back into the mists of time. We've got some great guests and fascinating topics to lift the lid on a moment when, let's face it, people all around the world will have gone medieval. Subscribe and follow Gone Medieval from History Hit wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Your subtitle on your book called The Book, An Exploration of the Most Powerful Object of Our Time. It's an interesting subtitle, I think, the fact we're surrounded by all myriad of different technologies. And yet the book means something really special, doesn't it? I mean, it is the most powerful object, I suppose. The ability to be able to sort of communicate knowledge. And we've got all kinds of ways of doing it. The book is something special, isn't it? In a way, it's that sort of symbolic thing. Everything comes from, in a way, comes from the book. This idea of being able to pass yeah. knowledge, to be able to share knowledge, to be able to communicate. I hate to say it, I don't think it's true anymore. I don't think it'd be really? hard to argue that the computer, in whatever form yeah. you're talking about, whether it's a smartphone or a laptop or you know some server farm in, in an anonymous building in an industrial estate, I think it's hard to argue that that is not now the most powerful object of our time. But... The books, well, for the bulk of Certainly human history. historically, presumably, though. Yeah, in the round, on average, yeah. yes, the book is, I think, <laughs> it does have this symbolic importance. People talk about book learning. We loved books as well. And there is something, I don't know, there is something, you want to touch books and you want to hold mm. books. There is something very human about yeah. books. Biological storage as opposed to digital storage. Well, you say, you say biological storage, and of course, a lot of books were made from parchment, which is an exceptionally biological material. I mean, books yeah. are now typically made from wood pulp paper, but for a long time, the production of a book was so labour-intensive in a way, it's not surprising they were so prized because they were so expensive to make. You know, every spread of pages or every few pages would need an entire animal. You need to raise a cow or a sheep or a goat in order to get its skin, in order to make parchment. So, Really? Yeah. Crikey. Yes. So I don't think I know what parchment is. I, I, I mean, I know the word, but so what's parchment then? It's made of... So yeah, parchment's made of animal skin. So papyrus, there was papyrus and the ancient world ran off papyrus. It was all exported from Egypt. And then there was a series of wars going on between Egypt and part of what is now Syria. And so parchment exports dropped and there was a need to find something else to use in place of it. And this one particular Greek city-state called Pergamon seemed to have the answer. In fact, again, the invention of parchment is ascribed to its ruler. He didn't invent parchment. He took the credit. Parchment is basically 
a very thin animal. It's an animal skin that has been cleaned and the hair has been mm-hmm. taken off. It's been scraped until it's very, very smooth. It's been dipped in a whole pile of different baths, different mm-hmm. concoctions. And finally, the skin is stretched on a frame, a wooden frame, and it's pulled very, very tight. And it's left to dry. And when it dries out, you have this very flat, smooth, rigid material. So it's made of animal skin, but it's very, very, very thin animal skin. You can still see pores in it. You can still see where the veins used to run through it. That's amazing. And then you cut it into rectangles. So how many animals per book? Oh, wow. That's a herd. That's a herd herd of of cows or sheep you're you're holding in your hand there. That's not good. That's not going to... The mass market book production, you're not going to use parchment. It's not going to well, it's, work. It, it's why it was so expensive. It's why it was so why it was so priced. It did turn out that the best animals were the youngest ones. So I think rarely would you have an animal living past one year old before you're slaughtering it and using it for using it for parchment. The problem is they, they do things like they they walk into trees and they give themselves scars, which then mar the paper. So the the skin is both wow, thinner and more supple and less likely to have any blemishes or marks. I had no idea. And that, what, you know, we talked about this at the beginning, actually, sort of saying that books nowadays, they're not, they haven't been made redundant, like mm. sort of Betamax or something, because new mm. technologies have come along. We still value books. What is it about the, the book, the form, the weight, touch of a book that, that means something? Why do I, for example, I'm surrounded by books. I've got hundreds of books and I love books and I, I covet books. Why, where does that come from? It's not even the stuff that's in the... I mean, it is the thing that's in the book. Mm-hmm. Obviously, what the book is communicating, but the actual object itself, there is something meaningful. I think you're right to mention weight. There are all of the other sort of tactile aspects of a book. It's a thing you can hold. It's a human scale thing. You can look at a book. You can imagine to yourself how much information is in there. There is, there is something nicely self-contained about a book. I think weight, I guess you've got the other sensory stuff. You've got the smell of glue or leather or whatever it's made from. Mm. But... I think the weight's something that is quite interesting. In China, before paper arrived, people wrote on either bamboo or silk. They would take bamboo reeds and they would cut them into little strips. And they would bind these strips into kind of mats. I have in mind kind of placemats that people used to use in the 1970s, which you used to kind of unroll. Mm. Yes, it's I almost know. like that. And so that's yeah. one of the yeah, reasons yeah. that Chinese writing runs from top to bottom because they would write along these strips which were bound ah, so they, they ran vertically. How interesting. But it meant the books were very heavy. And so mm. someone's knowledge was talked about in how many, I think it was like how many cartloads of books they've read because the books themselves were so heavy. So we've always associated books, I think, with, with weight. It's a really physical mm. thing. and That's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And although I can look at my smartphone and just be, you know, my mind boggles at the technology that went into it, but a book is something different. It's a self-contained vehicle. It's both medium and message at the same time. And it has this weight. It has this physical presence. So I think you're absolutely right to mention that. There's something as well about the, the idea of kind of first edition as well. Like, why is it that a first edition is more valuable than just another edition of a book? I mean, I, I'm looking around at my book. I've got a few first edition books that are so meaningful to mm. me. You know, there's, I've got one that's signed by the author and, and, and just... All that stuff is loaded with meaning. And I'm trying to just sort of understand in, in the book world why these things matter. Ooh, that's a really interesting one. I mean, for me, as I was writing the book, I was interested in the first example of this sort of binding or the first example of that sort of binding or the first use of paper or parchment. So mm. for me, it was a bit, there was a historic interest in it. I don't know. I, I look at my bookshelf and I, honestly, mostly it's it's cheap paperbacks. I think for me, the value or the sentimental 
attachment to a book is that it's the one that I read at a particular point in my life. It's the one that I see as yellow yeah. because it was so cheap and the paper's cheap and it's just gradually eating itself over time. So I, I don't I don't think I generally have the same attachment to well, no, it's not. It's not like I'm surrounded by first editions. I'm just, I've got loads of old crappy books, but there's a you know occasionally you know the books from yeah. your childhood, for example, exactly as you say, I'm the same. I, I mean, I mm. still have books from my childhood that are just loaded with meaning, and they've got my mm. little doodles in and 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 marks, and that's meaning. But there is something mm. about sort of holding something that's like, oh my god, that is the first edition of Shakespeare's first folio. I think, I think it's just human nature. We value things that are rare or yeah. in some way important. Yeah. And it's interesting you should mention doodles. I think one of the things that books have going for them and that I've always had going for them is that, well, the very first books, of course, were all written by hand, you know, until until Gutenberg comes along. There's just no economical way to, ah, actually, outside of China, there's no economical way to reproduce books on a large scale. In China, print runs, because they were printing, were relatively low. They would mm. tend to, um, someone would take a sheet of paper and they would use a brush to to write or to draw what they wanted to be on the page. They'd flip it over, push it down onto a piece of wood, they'd peel mm. the paper off, and now they've got an image of the, a reversed image of the page on this wood. Then they would carve out all of the negative space, and now you've got a block you can print from. So in China, for hundreds of years before Gutenberg came along, books were being printed. They weren't using movable type. They did try, but there are basically too many characters in the Chinese script for it to work. But printing had been around for some time. But in the West you've got this this tradition of books being handwritten so not only do you have a scribe who has physically written out every single word that you've you're you're reading mm. there's a really strong tradition of people annotating them and so then you start to get books where you've got a lovely neat block of text in the middle and it's absolutely the, the margins are absolutely crammed with annotations and commentary and then the commentary starts to become important so like the church is publishing editions of the bible that are filled with commentary around the outside <laughs> lest you misinterpret them and so you have this weird kind of, this meta thing. It's not just the original text. That's which really interesting, yeah. Out. Now it's all of the comments that people made in the past. And people still doodle in them. People still underline things and highlight things. So a book physically is a lovely thing to interact with in that sense. Um, you can, Of course, you know, you can do it on a Kindle or a tablet or a computer. Well, I, I, I do. And, and in, even in your book, I've got some interactions <laughs> with a pencil. <laughs> I do that if I'm reading books for work, I'll, unless it's a, you know, a Precious book. I, I'll always, I, you know, I write things in. I'm just actually. What have I got here? I'm just. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'm looking. I'm, this is a book, Adam Rutherford and Hannah Fry's mm. book, and I did a thing with, and and in it, it lots of post-it notes, but loads of drawings and notes and stuff. Actually, going back to all my old school books when I was a kid, lots of pictures of Willies scrawled in, and that you know. I hope there are no pictures of Willies in my book. There's none. I haven't drawn. <laughs> I, haven't done, I haven't done that. What's the What's the weirdest book? you've ever come across it in the sort of technological sense rather than the subject matter. Have you come across anything particularly novel and strange? I I read about a few books where people are trying to, they're trying to innovate. So once the form of the book was settled, once people have adopted parchment because it tends to last longer than papyrus, uh, they've started to use leather coverings. They're sewing, they're sewing things together in a slightly more sophisticated way. They're using wooden boards to cover them. You know, so you have a wooden board, the stack of paper or papyrus, it's all sewn together. Then you cover the whole thing in leather. I read about, for example, books where you'd have two books attached to a single wooden board. And I, I struggle to think why this would be useful rather than just a single slightly larger book. Yeah, that's not going to work. I'd be annoying because it, it just wouldn't fit in your bookcase. And you'd be no, like, it's a, yeah, I think it's a terrible idea. But I think the thing that struck me most was that at some point, so leather is a good thing to cover books in. It's flexible. It lasts for a long time. If you moisten it, 
and then you heat up sort of metal tools. You can impress shapes in it. You can basically make it look nice. You can apply little bits of gold leaf to decorate it to make it a, a nicer object to look at. At some point, people started to cover books in human skin. Oh, Jesus. Which is called <laughs> anthropodermic bibliopegy or bibliopegy. Crikey. I think it's just a few uh, 18th and 19th century learned people Jesus. going a bit too far. You can imagine sort of tattooed skin, for example, or, or crikey. <laughs> I'm just going to make a note for my publisher. <laughs> <laughs> Must have human skin. You know, sorry, Burke and Hare, the, the body snatchers in Edinburgh. Yes. Burke. Yeah, yeah. There's a book in Surgeons Hall, which is the, the headquarters of the, the, of the Association of um, Surgeons in Edinburgh, which has a book covered in Burke's skin. Some doctor in... Wait, really? Yes. Like his actual skin? Yeah. There's one, the, the Welcome Library <sighs> in you. London, or rather the Welcome Collection in London, has got, I think, at least yeah. one book that was made by, uh, was a French, was it a French writer or a French doctor? And again, he had a patient who had a stroke and died. And he had written a book about, I think it was like the female reproductive organs or something. And he thought he said, you know, I, I thought it was appropriate to have this book covered in uh, a female's skin. I don't think he could bring himself to see woman, but it's covered in human skin. It's been tanned. So that oh it, looks, it just looks like leather. It doesn't, that's there's really, nothing to suggest that it's, that it's yeah. human skin. But That would be the ultimate kind of autobiography, wouldn't it? So <laughs> I'd put myself into this book and then to actually cover it in your own skin on, on your death. I'm sort of shuddering at the idea, but I can imagine sending off a sample of your DNA and having a lab grow some skin. So you could then handle the book that is covered in a lab grown version of your own skin. Oh I wish my I hadn't God. thought of that. That's going to haunt Now me. we've thought, we, we can't, you're going to have to do that next time. Yeah, the, <laughs> next the genie's out of the bottle. <laughs> it's out, it's out. Oh my God. <laughs> Keith, it's been such a pleasure. I wanted to, your book is so beautiful and so fabulous, and also it has great weight to it. And holding it is very heavy. There's something very, very satisfying. Whoever your publisher is, who is your publisher, by the way? Norton. Norton. They've done a really beautiful job. It, and like you say, it's in the competition for getting people to read things. The technology of books, of binding, and, mm. and, the, and the craft of making books seems to be becoming more and more important i would say and, and and the way the books look and feel and like you know that my editor and the cover designer the interior designer the person who typeset it the people who managed the, the production of the book i think they gave themselves permission to kind of go to town a little bit because it was a book about the thing that they deal with every they day they really have so, gone to yeah. town it's a, it's a it's a great it's a great thing it's a, it's a wonderful thing my favorite book the, the most surprising bit of technology in books i ever saw was when if you hold a book and then you sort of fan the pages open mm -hmm. And you see beautiful paintings, like people have done kind of paintings. Mm. The pages are straight. You don't see it. It's just mm. invisible. And it might have a kind of gold leaf on it. But when yeah. you fan the pages out, you get these incredible kind of watercolour pictures and things, which, which I remember someone showing me that years ago, and I was absolutely blown away by it. And I think that's, that's another example of books just being important, of being this thing which people can't imagine, or certainly for a long time couldn't have imagined living without. They're, mm. they're everywhere. What do we do with them? We decorate them. We, we invest lots of time and and effort and, and money into them. Yeah. I have a, it's strange actually. I mean, books for me are really, really important. And sometimes I tweet about books and I have a, I have a secret mystery book giver and it's really nice. Like I'll be talking about, we talked about books from our childhood mm -hmm. and I'll, I'll be mentioning books that were important to me in my life. Mm -hmm. And then a few days later in the post, that book will arrive. Like with no, there'll be a kind of note saying, I hope you enjoyed this, but no signature, nothing. And I've had some really beautiful books sent to me, not 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 expensive books or anything, but just kind of books that mm. I've been talking, an encyclopedia perhaps, or a, a funny book about flying saucers I mentioned, uh, you know, and, and then it would arrive. That's, um, that's nice, sweet. It? And also 
mildly alarming, I think, in, Slightly, in equal measure. Yeah. I, I'm not alarmed by it because it's always, it's, there's, it doesn't come with kind of any kind of threat or anything. <laughs> yeah. know, just, it's just, okay, so we, Burke and Hare, weird books covered in human skin. Mm. Uh, so there's a fire in your house and you have to save one book. Which one's it going to be? Ooh. And it doesn't have to be an expensive book or anything. Ooh. Just like, you know, what's the book that for you is the, is the one that you just love so much? Oh, that is a really good question. I, whenever anyone asks me what my favourite book is, I would tend to say Moby Dick. I'm not even sure why I would say that. It's stuck with me, and I've got a really, I've got a really cheap edition, but I've had it for a while. And if I could find it, <laughs> that's what I'd take with me. In the absence of that, I would probably take, I'd probably take the galley proofs of the next book, <laughs> which happened to be right next to me. <laughs> Brilliant. Hey, Keith, listen, thanks for stopping by and talking to us about the invention of the book. I knew it wasn't invented. I knew that we were going to get no, to a point where we're like, we just don't know when it happened. It was discovered the exactly. I, I like the story of the um, of the two brothers digging and finding stuff. That's how history happens. Dig, <laughs> dig, and you shall find. My wife is uh, is an archaeologist by training, so she would definitely agree. There you go. Thank you very much for for stopping Not by. Well. Thank you for having me. So there we go. Thanks very much for listening. I hope you will never look at a book on your bookcase in the same way again if you're enjoying the series don't forget to go back and listen to other episodes don't forget to subscribe don't forget to tell your friends and family about this series um, if you think they'll enjoy it and don't forget to get in touch if you've got a suggestion for a topic that you think we should cover however big however grand however niche we'd love to hear from you and you can email us at patented at historyhit.com or as ever you can stop me in the street or send me a dm or whatever we always like hearing from you see you next time while i still have you very briefly if you fancy getting all of the history hit podcast archive and new episodes ad free along with hundreds of history documentaries to watch download our app across apple app store google play and smart tv platforms follow the link in the show notes or go to historyhit.com slash subscribe there is thousands of hours of history on there including a documentary on science in the middle ages with seb folk and also one with me talking about the secret history of the space race as a patented listener you get a special gift if you use the code patented at the checkout you get 50% off your first three months that's patented for 50% off your first three months and if you're an apple listener you can subscribe for new ad-free podcast episodes within the apple app